0: Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you here. Those of you who are in person, glad you're here. If you're joining us online, thank you for being here as well. Uh, I want to um, uh, share with you, I, I thank you for uh, giving me a little bit of time away. I went to see my mother this past week. I showed her how to watch us online, so she may be with us right now. So I have to be careful of the stories I tell from now on. <laughs> But, uh, I, I, you know, we, we, uh, she's not a big fan of technology, and uh, we got into her car and she said, can you change the clock? It's been wrong ever since they changed the time. And I said, well, mom, it's gonna go back here in just a week, can we just leave it like it is? And she was like, well, I guess so, if you don't wanna help me. <laughs> mom, you got this guilt thing down pat. And mom, if you're here today, I love you. Don't I love her, church? Uh, I am excited about Dustin Nickerson. Uh, he'll be here March 31st. Is that right? March 31st. Uh, um, I get an email as uh, as folks sign up. We already have uh, forty over forty people uh, not connected to our church ha- have uh, purchased tickets. A couple of you have. We'd love for you to come. We really do. Uh, because, uh, in many ways, as we host and welcome folks outside of the church, having you here to, to greet people and to love on people is a, is a wonderful way of showing our hospitality. Um, I went online and listened, listened to some of his stuff, and I thought to myself, how long do I have to wait for this to pass so I can steal some of his jokes? Because uh, they're pretty good. Um, so, uh, I hope that I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at Matthew chapter five. Uh, We are in a series, uh, The End of Me. Uh, This series is uh, in many ways, uh, Pastor Joe is the one who introduced uh, the book, The End of Me, written by Kyle Eidelman. You probably don't know Kyle. Kyle is the teaching pastor at uh, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the nation. Uh, Over 20,000 people uh, come to their church every week. Uh, Kyle is a um, uh, graduate of Ozark Christian College, a wonderful school, and uh, just has a great way. I encourage you, to, if you haven't purchased the book, to purchase the book. Uh, we're, we're, we're sort of fo- I'm sort of following uh, the book as close as I can. I depart from it a little bit. So uh, it's sort of like that professor in college who you, you always asked, are, are you testing from your lectures or from the book? And you ask that question because if they say the book, you just zone out during lectures, Right. Well, we're testing from both, so uh, you have to listen to both if you really want to get this. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We're going to be focusing today on verse 5, but it's always good to hear the whole of God's Word. Beginning um, in verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that uh, on Ash Wednesday as we we launched our Lenten observances. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Pastor Joe walked us through that verse last week. God bless you, Brother Joe. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and understanding to it. Amen. Let's pray for just a moment, if you will. Father, we come before your throne of grace, not by our own righteousness, but by that of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. We, we know, Lord, that we are changed when we encounter your word the living word, Jesus Christ, as he speaks to us through the written word, Holy Scripture. And so, Lord, we are here ready to be changed for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Did you know that there is a whole field in social psychology that studies arrogance And I'm here to talk to you about arrogance. I'm a sinner, just like all of you. You know, I think it's kind of cool that there's a whole area where researchers do nothing but talk about arrogance. Can you imagine going to a dinner party and meeting somebody who studies arrogance? Hi, what's your name? What do you do for a living? And they reply, oh, I'm an expert in arrogance. I'm not really sure where to go with that. I would have lots of follow-up questions. I'm sure you would as well. Well, folks who study arrogance this phenomenon, this social phenomenon, say that there's three kinds of arrogance. Nelson Cowan, who is the distinguished professor of psychological sciences. Now, first of all, do you see the irony in that title? The distinguished professor. He is the distinguished professor who knows everything more than anybody else in the whole world on arrogance. We're going to listen to this fellow. That's what we're going to do. He says that there's three kinds of arrogance. Number one, individual arrogance. This is the most familiar type. It's the one that most of us are uh, best acquainted with, an outsized opinion of of one's own abilities or accomplishment. This is the person uh, that might be your Saturday night date or your boss. It's the kind of arrogance that's annoying, but it's really largely harmless. It's the kind of arrogance that most of us are guilty of ourselves. The second kind of arrogance is a little bit more uh, uh, significant. It's called competitive arrogance. This is the person who has an exaggerated sense of their own abilities or accomplishments as compared to others. Uh, This is the tennis player who thinks that they could give Venus Williams a run for their money. The third kind of arrogance is antagonistic arrogance. This is the type that's probably the most serious. This is the type of person who enjoys denigrating others based on an assumption of their own superiority. These are people who are entitled. The antagonistically arrogant person shows or feels active opposition or hostility toward someone or something suggesting their aggression. Dr. Cowan says. So there you go. Now you're experts on arrogance as well. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. Now preachers have argued and have disagreed about what that word meek really means. Just during my lifetime alone in the years that I've been preaching, meekness has gone through a real transition. And I won't outline all of those for you because I've got other things I want to talk about. But I want to take a moment and see if we can figure out today what that word meek really means. Now, in its original language, in Greek, it only occurs four times in the entirety of your New Testament. And depending on the translation that you use, it's going to translate that word differently. Now, I use the English Standard Version, and in that version... Uh, as we have seen, the first time it's mentioned is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, where it is translated meek. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, the same word is used. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am here, it says, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, it is used again, Jesus is uh, speaking. Uh, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So already we've seen it translated meek, gentle, and humble, all right there in the Gospel of Matthew. The fourth time it's used is in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, and here it's translated gentle again in the English Standard Version. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a... Gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, what does it mean? How best can we interpret that word? Because getting an understanding of that word will help us in understanding what Jesus is trying to teach us in this Beatitude. Now, this is going to be hard for some of us to hear, okay, including myself. It really has an idea, this word of not just an attitude, but an attitude toward someone, okay? Or in the presence of someone, how we act in the presence of someone. You understand? Now, we, understand, we, we, we get this. I mean, you probably, hopefully, hopefully, talk differently when you're in front of your small children or grandchildren than you do than when you're with your friends. You're, you're a little bit more guarded, Why are you guarded? Because you have an understanding of the responsibility you have to model appropriate speech and behavior in front of little ones. This word meekness here used in the Gospel of Matthew is a meekness toward God. What What it carries is this understanding that how do I act in front of God? This awareness, are you ready? That every word I say... Everything that I do, I'm doing in the presence of God. The Spirit of God is within me. The presence of God is with me at all times. God sees me. God knows every part of me. He knows me in the quietness of my own solitude. Now, this isn't in my manuscript, but I'm going to teach you this real quick. Three things. There's three parts of every single one of us. The public part, the personal part, and the private part. The public part is, is the part that we, we want everybody to think about us. It's the stuff we post on social media. That's the public part. Then there's the personal part. That's the part of us that only our spouse or significant other knows. And then there's the private part, and that's the part that only we know. And in some cases, we don't even know fully. It's the stuff we're not even sure we want God to be able to see. And yet, the truth is, God sees all of those parts of us. Meekness toward God is that attitude in our spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. Let me say that sentence one more time. Meekness toward God is, the, is that attitude in our spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. That is, everything that life throws at us, we receive because we know we are being dealt with by God. Whether it's His active will or His permissive will, nothing happens to us that God isn't working with us to overcome, to be victorious over, to show strength, his strength. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, according to the Old Testament, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict that he is using them to purify us, and that he will deliver us in his time. Now, now most of you are probably saying, or not most, many of you may be saying, I don't like that definition. Well, neither do I, but that's the definition. (laughs) That's what meekness means. I got to say what the definition means. There's, There's lots of things Pastor Joe and I preach about that we don't like to preach about that we don't like to talk about because we're uncomfortable. We're wrestling with them as well. And yet the promise of Scripture is that in the midst of injustice, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, God is with us. And our attitude in confronting that pain, that injustice, that suffering, God calls us to be meek. Not a wuss, but meek. Isaiah 41, verse 17 and 18. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and when we say wilderness, we're talking about a desert here. And the dry land springs of water. We could do a whole sermon series just on those two verses. Of how God confronts injustice. How God quenches the thirst of people. How God satisfies the hunger of people. Well, let me, let me help. This, this helped me. I hope it helps you. Gentleness. Or, or meekness is the opposite to self assertiveness and self interest. It is the opposite of those things. Gentleness and meekness stem from the trust in God's goodness and God's control over the situation. The gentle person is not preoccupied with themselves, this is a work of the Holy Spirit, church. (laughs) This is not a work that is done even remotely in the flesh. It goes contrary to everything we know to be true about our human condition. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let none of us become conceited, Paul says, provoking one another. Anybody provoked you this week? You provoked anybody this week? Envying, any of you have been envying anybody this week? Envying one another. Well, Pastor, there are some pretty big ideas you just laid out there, and I think I'm good. I mean, in the light of what's been going on this past week, I haven't invaded any other countries. I haven't bombed any maternity hospitals. I haven't taken any bribes. I haven't stolen any cars. I think I'm pretty good here. So let me give you a couple of things, some some things to think about. May I offer you some food for thought this Lord's Day? Now, I'm going to use... The second person singular, that is, is the word you instead of the word we. But recognize I see myself in there. So so this is me speaking to all of us. Do you think that you are the most reasonable person you know? Do you think that what you want is what everyone else should want? Because what you want... Is important do you always think that the other person should apologize first change first that that, that that even if you did do something or said something you wish you hadn't have said well who could blame you for saying it after what they did to you who could blame you for doing it after what you had to endure do you think of the consequences of what you say and how you say it on other people, when you lose your temper with the store clerk or the waiter or the person on the other end of the phone, I can't tell you how many people have received my anger after having gone through a 15-minute phone tree. didn't have anything to do with them. had to do with me. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall we have colloquially in our culture trimmed that verse down to just this phrase pride comes before the fall this afternoon i want you or this week i want you to go home and read second samuel verse 11 all right i'm sorry chapter 11 well actually read all of second samuel it won't hurt you Somebody asked me this week, what's the best version of the Bible? They wanted to buy a new Bible. I said, whichever one you'll read. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about David, King David, Israel's second king and the man after God's own heart, the Bible says, that he walked humbly before the Lord. As David led with a pure heart and skillful hands at the early parts of his reign, the Lord granted him great success. But like the king before him, King Saul, and the kings after him, after the division of the uh, of the empire, King Uzziah, pride corrupted David's heart. You remember the story when David asked who that beautiful woman was down there. That woman who lived in the house he was able to see from his roof. The woman he wanted more than he wanted his own integrity. And then he discovered she was married. One of his servants sheepishly asked after David said, Who is that woman? His servant said, Isn't she the wife of Uriah? Now, David's response to that answer was to send for her anyway. After all, David was the king. And the king got whatever he wanted, right? Earlier in his life, David humbly asked God to keep him in the shadow of his wings, and he was grateful for the Lord's provision. When David was hiding in a cave, Psalm chapter 57, trying to avoid Saul and his efforts to have him executed, but now that he's on the roof of his palace, David is trusting himself and not God. When David was weak before the Lord, he was actually strong. But when David felt strong was when he became fully weak. He did not seek refuge in the arms of God, but he sought them in the arms of a woman. A woman that he shouldn't have even had in his apartment. And when he abandoned the weakness before God, when he walked in pride, he walked toward his own demise. Now we all struggle with pride, every single one of us. But probably, in my experience, pride plagues leaders the most, or pride plagues us when we find ourselves in positions of leadership the most. Leaders have authority. Leaders make decisions. Leaders are in the position of influence over others and the opportunity to ask others for their time and their commitment. It's in those moments of influence, in those moments of leadership, in those moments. and every single one of us, at some point in our week will find ourselves in a position of influence or leadership among coworkers, with our children or grandchildren, within our family, within our neighborhood. Probably a passage of scripture that ought to be committed to memory by all of us is from Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 through 19. We don't like to talk about this much, but there are six things, the Bible says, that the Lord hates. Now, wouldn't you be interested in knowing what the Lord hates? We talk a lot about God loves. Yes, that's true, but God also hates. What does God hate? Matter of fact, the Bible says that these things are an abomination to him. Are you ready? Number one, haughty eyes. That's arrogant eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers and sisters. It does take meekness, humility to hear these things, to think about these things. And, 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 and what I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of those who've been closest around me, entitlement always rises as pride rises. When we get more proud, we get more entitled. It is impossible to be filled with humility and have a sense of entitlement at the same time. Whenever we feel like we are owed to something, it is, be, it is because we have forgotten it is God who is the one who gives us all good things to begin with. When we feel like somebody owes us something, we've forgotten that it is God who decides when we get what we need, and at the time we get it. And when we find ourselves in those moments of leadership, or when we are leaders especially, it is easy for us to develop a sense of entitlement. Perhaps David felt entitled to the palace entitled to being with a married woman in his room because he served the people of Israel extremely well. He defeated their enemies. He energized the capital city and gave it a sense of national pride, so much so that to this day Jerusalem is called the city of David. Maybe he felt he deserved whatever he wanted, deserved more than he currently had. The thing that David forgot was that all of his victories, all of the blessings that he enjoyed were only because God had graciously given them to him. David's belief was that he was entitled to Bathsheba, and it revealed that in that moment he was not filled with gratitude for God and his blessings. God was the one who took David from watching (laughs) sheep— to leading all of israel from sleeping in fields and caves running for his life to sleeping in a palace from being one whose family considered him an unlikely the most unlikely candidate for king to the king that everyone respected and revered and to this day remember and honor his name and tragically all of that was not enough for david because on that night that he gave the order for his servants to bring him Bathsheba, it it began to unwind. He was ungrateful for God's provisions and blessings, and instead of using the throne to serve others, he used the throne to serve himself. Humble leaders realize the only thing we are entitled to This is the essence of the gospel, church. When we realize that the only thing we are entitled to is destruction and death for our rebellion, for our sin, for our hatred of God, it is only in that moment that we are then able to see clearly that what God is giving to us is mercy. That is, he is not giving us what we deserve, but rather giving to us grace, receiving something that we do not deserve, giving us himself, taking away our sin, and offering us eternal life. And in the same way, everything we steward, everything we take care of, every opportunity we have, every season we are able to lead and serve others is, in is only because of his grace. To remind us of this truth, the Apostle Paul rhetorically asked, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do I have that I didn't receive from the God who so generously gave it to me? Well, that's the law. And what's the promise? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And there might be somebody here online or somebody in this room today that the Holy Spirit has just spoken to us, as the Holy Spirit does so often to me. But you're guilty of pride, aren't you? You're guilty of entitlement. I know. The church has called the Beatitudes, that is this list of things that Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 5 when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the church calls these Beatitudes the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. Let me try to remind you of your Sunday school back when you were a kid. You probably don't remember the Sunday school teacher saying this to you, but hopefully he or she did. What's the purpose of the law? There are three purposes of the law in the Old Testament. Number one, it curbs sin in the world. That's the first purpose of the law. The second purpose, it mirrors to us our sin. That is, it accuses us. It helps us see our need for grace. And third, it guides us to know what pleases God. That's the three purposes of the law. I think I listed those in the study notes. I hope that you'll, 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 you'll take those study notes home and, and, and learn that purpose. Now, some of you are going to leave today thinking, I can do this. I can do these things. I, I'm, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be meek so that I can receive the earth. No, you can't. And neither can I. And here's where the gospel comes in. Because the good news is that God has provided salvation. God has given salvation for all of humanity because of, for the sake of, and through Christ and Christ alone. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we can do these things. Only through faith can we please God. And humility, meekness, I can't do that. I bring nothing to the table. But only when we surrender. Only when we recognize we bring nothing to the table. Only when we are able to say, Jesus, the only thing I can bring to you is my sin. The only thing that I can bring to you is my rebellion. The only thing I can bring to you is my brokenness. Jesus says, let me have it. And he places it on his own shoulders. And he allows his own hands and feet to be nailed to the cross. And in so doing, he returns to us, in trade, forgiveness. Eternal life. And that is what we inherit. We inherit the earth Not for ourselves. But we inherit the earth that is Christ's. We inherit His kingdom. And that's what this verse means. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who realize they've got nothing to give to God. Because they will inherit the earth. Because God will give the earth which rightfully belongs to Him to us out of his grace, out of his mercy, because that's who he is.